You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Well, so far, um, we're, you know, five months into 2021, which is hard to believe. So far, we've had 25 mass shootings uh, take place in our country. This is a record-breaking pace for us. And uh, the deadliest of all those being the shooting that took place in San Jose, California, a week and a half ago on May the 26th. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Ten people were shot and killed by one of their coworkers. It was nine, but someone else just died this week. They've been in the ICU for a week and a half, and they finally uh, didn't make it. So ten people shot and killed by one of their own employees. And as I was watching all this unfold uh, a week and a half ago, I was reminded of another shooting that took place 340 miles down the road in San Bernardino, California, back in December of 2015. Raise your hand if you remember this. This is one of the, for whatever reason, this is one of those things where I remember right where I was when it happened. And we had friends coming over that night, and, and I just remember that night we, we punted on our, we were going to watch a movie, and we just watched the news all night and just watched this unfold. 14 people were murdered in that shooting, and 17 more were wounded. And as, I, as I've been thinking the last week and a half about this, I've been thinking about the San Jose shooting, I've been reflecting on, you know, remembering the San Bernardino shooting, I remembered this article that was published by the New York Daily News after the San Bernardino uh, shooting, and it had this searing headline. There it is. All caps, massive font, God isn't fixing this. And of course, you know, elephant in the room, the whole article is politically charged. Okay, it's all about gun control, and it's not tactful. It's not fair, but it's also not all the way untrue. And what the editor is doing is criticizing these politicians for tweeting things like our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and their families. And they're saying, hey, instead of just thinking about these people and praying for them, why don't you use your, by the way, this is not me talking. This is the editor talking before you get mad at me. Okay. I don't agree. I don't agree with, with this, with the, with the stance here. I think it's not tactful, not helpful. I'm just telling you, this is what the article is about. Okay. So. Um, instead of thinking about these people and praying for them, why don't you use your power to actually do something about it because God isn't fixing it. And I'm not about to stand up here and talk about which way you should vote or where you should stand on gun control. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. You think I'm crazy? Also, um, like our church isn't about that. The flag we fly is the gospel of Jesus, and that bears weight on how we think about all these things. But those are all secondhand things, and there's even room for disagreement amongst that in our family and in this room. Okay, So that's not the point I'm making. All right, What, what, What I'm saying here is the reason why this is cooking, and here's what's cooking inside me that I'm bringing to this room. The last week and a half, I've been thinking about the brokenness of what's going on. I've been reflecting. I went back and reread this article from 2015. And I've just been, what I've been thinking about is how the reason I want to share this with you is this, this article highlights two things that are fundamentally true about us and about the world that we live in. So if you're taking notes, here's number one. Number one, it confronts us with the reality that evil is absolutely real. And we live in a broken world where evil things happen all the time. When the New York Daily News says God isn't fixing this, I don't care how left or liberal or their theology, what, they, what their worldview is or what they believe about God, they're acknowledging the presence of evil. 
The this that they're talking about is the brokenness of humanity and, and the presence of the fact that we do evil, unjust things. And there's systemic evil playing itself out in our culture and in our world. So, I mean, and it's, not, it's not just about gun violence and, and mass murder. There are countless forms of evil that plague our world and our culture. Economic injustice, abuses of power, racial disparity, oppression, violence against women, lack of care for the poor and the marginalized, abortion, the fatherless, drug dealers, adultery, the breakdown of the family, sweatshops, slavery, terrorism, sex trafficking, the entire porn industry. The list goes on and on. The point is, turn on the news, grab your phone, and in a nanosecond, you're going to be confronted by the reality that we live in a broken world terrorized by evil. And there's no denying that. The second thing this highlights for us is that at the core of every human being, there is a deep, innate longing for goodness to prevail. It's at the heart of every story we tell, every movie you watch, every TV show, every novel you read, every comic book, whatever. It's all a story about good versus evil. And unless you're a psychopath, you want the good guy to win, right? Nobody watches a story or a movie and there's a bully over here and there's a marginalized person over here and you root for the bully. I'd like to talk to you after the service if that's you. All right, so you want the good guy to win. And naturally, you want, you want the villain brought to justice, and you want to see good overcome evil. We're just born with this. Um, I recently found this old picture of me and my sister. I think, um, there we are. I think I'm about seven. She's about three. I'm Batman. She's Superwoman. And we used to dress up like this as kids, and we would run around the house, and we would pretend to fight crime right, and bust the bad guys and save the day. You remember this, right, from when you were a kid? Like, go back to when you you were a kid, this was just in you. This is just hardwired in you. As a kid, you want want Hulk Hogan to win, right? You want to see Spider-Man take down the Green Goblin, Luke Skywalker to defeat Darth Vader. You want Voldemort to lose. You want Frodo to destroy the ring. Like, this is just... This, there's something deep within us that just aches for goodness to overcome evil. Now, on that note, here's the good news. Not the New York Daily News, but the good news, okay? The good news is that despite what you might actually think or the way things may appear, God is going to fix this. So God has a plan to overcome evil with good and to saturate and fill the entire earth with the glory of his goodness. Now here's the shocker. You ready for this? Because here's the shocker. The big idea that Paul wants us to see in Galatians chapter 5 is that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are his plan. Did you hear that? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are his plan. We've been walking through the fruit of the Spirit for weeks, and we're on word number six. Guess what word number six is? Here's the, here's the, here it is. The fruit of the Spirit that God wants to produce in your life is what? It's goodness. It's goodness. Here's what that means. Okay, here's the, here it is. Here's the, here's the theme for today. The church, disciples of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, is God's plan A for overcoming evil with good and filling and flooding the earth with the glory of his goodness. And this is not like, 
here, here's what this means for you, you and me individually. This, here's what this means for us individually. This means that, because I'm, I'm talking about on a corporate level, let's, let's talk about you and me every, every day, right? Nine to five, whatever. Let's talk about you and me practically. Here's what this means for us practically. If you're a disciple of Jesus, it means that God, God will, God intends in, in a culture of moral decay and brokenness and real evil, God wants to and God will bear the fruit of his goodness in and through your life. He's not just been good to you. He will be good through you. He will fill the earth with his goodness through the presence of his body empowered by his spirit in his world. Y'all with me? That's what, that's what we're talking about. Now, so here's the deal. Here's what that means. Okay, here's what this means. It means that God's goodness is not just a fruit that he wants to grow in you, but it's actually something that he wants you to step into and the Bible calls you to put it on and then walk in it and actually live it out and actually do it. We're, we're called to go out and do good. Now, before I say anything else, let me, I gotta say this, okay? Because I know the gravitational pull of the human heart is toward performance. Mine too. So if this isn't for anybody else in the room, it's for me. All right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. The point of this text, the point of this sermon is not you need to all go out and try harder to be better people and be good boys and girls and go do more good things. Okay? Not that that would probably would help the world a little bit, but that's not the point. The point is not go out and try harder to be good. Okay? But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater either. Because here's the deal. You are actually commanded, you and I, if you're a spirit-filled disciple of Jesus, all throughout the scriptures to go out and do good. To go out and bear the fruit of God's goodness. So let me just give you a few examples here. Paul says this in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, God's going to bring a harvest if you don't give up. So Paul's exhorting, he's commanding, don't give up in doing good. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, evil for evil, but always strive to do what is good for each other and then for the rest of the world. Psalm 37.3, trust in the Lord and do good. I love this one, Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and what? Good deeds. Listen, spur one another. The Bible's actually saying we should be pushing one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another, exhorting one another to go out and bear the fruit of goodness. Last verse. This blows my mind. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork. He created us. You want to know why? We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which... God prepared in advance for us to do. We often talk about what we're saved from, right? Addiction, sin, death, hell. We don't talk a lot about what we're saved for. And Paul says what you're saved for, if you're saved, is for good works, which he says God's prepared before the foundations of the world that you walk in. Here's what's crazy about that verse. Like this is actually saying it's not an accident that God has saved all of us together and placed us together as the crossing church in this cultural moment and called us to be his people and bear the fruit of his goodness in this city. 
We were prepared for this, guys. You've been prepared for this. You were made for this. We were made as a church to walk out in this city and bring the light of the glory of God's goodness into dark places. It's what we were made for. You love that, don't you, Shannon? Let's do it. I'm, I'm like ready to do it. Let's go. Let's take communion and let's go. But not yet. I got a lot more to say, okay? Um, all that being said, we have some major work to do because we need some help if we're going to step into this because we, we live in a culture, even in a church culture, that has pretty much completely lost the meaning of biblical goodness. And therefore, we don't have a vision for what goodness is and what it looks like to actually do good and pursue good in the way that Jesus has called us to. So in light of that, I just want to ask two simple questions this morning to help us walk through this text, okay? First, what is biblical goodness? What is it? Second, what does it look like to do biblical goodness? So on a practical level, what does it look like to bear the fruit of God's goodness in your life? Y'all with me? Here we go. First question, okay, that we have to ask if we're going to do this is what is biblical goodness? What is it? This thing that God wants to grow in us. Okay, probably it's best to, to start by talking about what goodness is not because there's a lot of confusion and distortion around this word. So here are a few things that biblical goodness is not, okay? Biblical goodness is not mediocre or less than ideal. If you listen to the way that we use the word good, it's almost like a bad word. So I say, how was the movie? Oh, that was good. Yeah, that was good. It's all right. Just, you know, it's like, well, not too bad. When we say good, we mean, ah, not too bad. You know, it's, just, it's okay. And so we've, we've, we've lost, like what we've done is we've lost, we've gutted, we've gutted goodness of its meaning and we've replaced it with these hollow superlatives. Let's go back to English class for a second. You want to know what a superlative is? A superlative is, everything is awesome! Right? Awesome. Um, everything's amazing. And we use these words like we don't even know. We don't, they have no, there's no meaning to it. Like when you think, when you say everything is awesome, nothing is. We will say Steph Curry's awesome. In the next breath, you will say Taco Bell's awesome. I'm going to tell you something. Both those things cannot be awesome. Okay. One of them's mediocre. The other's awesome. I'll let you figure out which is which. Okay. So what we, we, we've reduced, here's my point. We've reduced good to mean something less than awesome or less than amazing. And that's, that's reductionistic and it's not biblical goodness. And so now we're so spoiled that like, we don't, we think goods, we don't want good. We want better than good. I want awesome. I want amazing, but you, you don't, we don't understand what biblical goodness means. It's not, it's not less than ideal. It's not mediocrity. Also, biblical goodness is not the same thing as being nice. Okay, sometimes, especially in a legalistic church culture like I grew up in, we reduce doing good to be nice, be, be good boys and girls, right? And, and this has nothing to do with the attitude of your heart or the call to step in and do something about the brokenness all around you. Be nice just means behave, right? Uh, keep your nose clean. Don't do anything that's going to get you into trouble. But I'm going to tell you something. Biblical goodness, if you actually do it, is going to get you into trouble, because goodness is going to lead you into bad places. 
It's good. Light is going to lead you into dark place. Light's looking for darkness, right? Where can I penetrate? Good news is looking to invade bad spaces. So if you're going to walk in biblical goodness, it's going to get you into some, it's anything but clean and nice. It is a mess. To be good is to be a mess. I love that old line from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity when he says, Jesus didn't come to make nice people. He came to make new people who bring the renewal of his kingdom into broken, unjust places in the world. Biblical goodness ain't niceness, and it doesn't play very nice. Sometimes it can get a little feisty. We'll talk about that in a second, okay? All right, lastly, it's really important for me to say this. Biblical goodness is not subjective opinion. All right, so we live in a culture right now, in a cultural moment that champions and loves and values something called relativism. I realize I'm using some big words, but we've got, we got to talk about this. This is, this is out there, okay? Relativism is what it sounds like. It means that goodness is relative. So I'll define goodness for me. You can define goodness for you. And I will redraw the moral boundaries to suit my purposes. So if you think that pornography is okay as long as it's not hurting, or you know, if you think it's bad and I think it's okay as long as it's not hurting anyone, I'll just redraw the moral line, right? Because truth and morality is not absolute, but it's relative, depending on who you are and what you want your definition to be. Well, that's bogus. It doesn't work that way. And everybody knows there's a moral code written in the fabric of society. That's why murder and cowardice and thievery and things like that are sins in any culture, any place on the planet, any given time in history that you've ever been in. So my point is this. When the Bible talks about goodness, it's not subjective. We don't get to define what it means. And so the question is then, well, what does it mean? What is the biblical goodness the Spirit wants us to grow in and walk in? Well, according to the biblical authors, okay, you can't define what goodness is apart from knowing who God is. The, the, the way the Bible sets this up, and it gets to, gets to define it for us, God himself is the source of all goodness, and he's the standard of all that is good. That's how the Bible talks about God. And that's how we talk about God, right? So we sing about how God is good. We sing songs like, you're a good, good father. Or we say things like this. Let me see if you can give me some feedback. We say things like, God is good. And all the time, amen, and he is. He is. And so this is how we talk about him. And then you see this all over the scriptures. There's this repeated theme. Luke read it in the call to worship that you see throughout the Psalms and the prophets. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. I could give you dozens of verses about God's goodness, but here's what I want to do. I want to leave here for a moment. I want you to come with me, and I want us to go back in the Old Testament, and let's get inside Exodus 34 for just a second. Can we do that? Because I think the most powerful description of God's goodness comes from God himself in Exodus chapter 34. So let me give you a little bit of context. We'll put, we'll put the scripture on the screen when we get ready for it. God has just rescued his people from 400 years of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And now he's leading them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But they hit this bump in the road in Exodus 32. Because while God and Moses are on top of the mountain having a, like a powwow, like the rest of the people are down at base camp and they get anxious and antsy. So they take off all their gold and their jewelry and they melt it. And then, and then they take it and they fashion it into this golden calf. And they ascribe glory to it. And they worship it and they give it credit for their redemption. Which you read it and you go, this is insane until you realize we do the same thing all the time. 
So then Moses, God says to Moses, like, you need to get back down to the base camp because the people have lost their minds. And Moses gets down there and he loses it. He's like, this is, God's going to abandon us here. We're going to die now in the wilderness. And so Moses goes into this prayer and he prays three things. God, please don't take your presence away from me. Then he prays, God, please don't take your presence away from us. Don't, if your presence isn't going to go with us, don't even send us because it's a death wish. And then scholars say that Moses kind of loses his mind because he gets really bold at the third prayer. You know when people get carried away? And they're like, they're like whoa, whoa, hey, we. He gets a little carried away here. And the third thing he says is, yeah, while you're at it, um, show me your glory. And it's like, wait a minute. If, you, if he does that, you're going to die. So he was like, yeah, show me your glory. Your glory? That's another one of those church words that we throw around. We sing about it. We read it in the scriptures. But like, I don't even know that I half the time understand exactly what it means. You want to know what glory means? Glory is the Hebrew word that means weight or weighty or heaviness. So what Moses prays in Exodus thirty-three eighteen is, God, show me your weightiness. Like, like I'm, I'm, I want to see the substance of, of what it is that you're really made of. God, show me your glory. And the next verse, God responds, and this is what he says. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Can we put those on the screen side by side? I want you to look at this. Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me the substance of what it is that you're made of. And God says, I will. I'll show you my goodness. Moses says, well, that ain't what I asked to see. I asked to see your glory. And God says, I'm going to show you. I will show you my goodness. Here's the point. His glory is his goodness. So in other words, when the Bible talks about God's glory, it's getting at the infinite weight of the beauty, the moral beauty and perfection and purity of God's character and his nature. God is morally beautiful. He is perfect and true in every way. His goodness is his glory. His his goodness is what makes him glorious and worthy of all our worship and, and, and our love and our obedience. Psalm 50 verse 2 says it like this. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. Why is Zion the perfection of beauty? Well, at the time, that's where God dwelled. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God in his glory shines forth. It's talking about his radiant glory shining out of this place. And his radiant glory is the perfection of his beauty. It's not saying God has a pretty face. His beauty is his character and his nature, his his essence. It's the stuff he's made of is goodness and moral beauty and integrity In every way, this is who God is. And so because he's good and true to his word, he does what he says he's going to do. He makes his goodness pass in front of Moses. He has to hide him in the cleft of a rock. And he's like, I'm going to hide you in here so you don't don't see me head on because you'll die. And then he lets him see the backside of his goodness. 
It's crazy. And as God passes by him, he, he proclaims to Moses and describes what his goodness is like. Here it is, Exodus 34, 6, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. God says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet, mysteriously, somehow, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God's describing his goodness. And according to his goodness, according to God, his goodness encompasses all of, let's leave that on the screen. Look at this. It encompasses all of his other virtues and his moral attributes. So look at this text. In this text, we see God's goodness toward the hurting he calls compassion. His goodness toward undeserving sinners like me and you he calls grace. His goodness to bear with us, he calls slow to anger or patience. His goodness to keep his promises, he calls loving faithfulness. And his goodness to punish the guilty, to make sure that sin and evil and injustice don't go unpunished, he calls justice. So, if we put all this together, we can finally start to define what biblical goodness is. Remember, that's the question we're trying to answer. If God tells us, I want to bear the fruit of goodness in your life, and you're, you're supposed to go out and do goodness, well, we better understand what it is that we're supposed to go out and do. So that's what we've been doing here is trying to define it. We're finally ready to define it. We put all this together. Here's a summary definition, okay? Here it is on the screen. Biblical goodness is the never-ending, overflowing beauty of God framed up and displayed through His divine mercy and justice. When God says, when we sing about God's goodness and we talk about God's goodness, whether we realize it or not, this is what we're talking about. It's God's moral beauty. Think about a picture frame. A beautiful piece of art framed up. And that frame displays and holds something beautiful. God's, God's goodness is his moral beauty framed up and displayed to the world through his divine justice, which includes his compassion, or his divine mercy, which includes his compassion and his graciousness and his slow to anger and his loving faithfulness and his divine justice to execute justice where there is evil and brokenness. Now, second big question we have to wrestle with, right? If this is what biblical goodness is, what does it look like for the Spirit of God to grow this fruit in us and for us to actually do this? In, in a world of moral decay and brokenness and evil, what does it look like for us to walk in this biblical goodness? Well, it's hard to do. But it's not rocket science. Okay? If goodness is the moral beauty of God framed up and displayed through mercy and justice, then us bearing the fruit of goodness looks like us doing mercy and justice. And don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Because this is exactly what God says that goodness is in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So now here's what I want to do. Let's, let's take a step out of Exodus 34. Let's go to the right in the Old Testament a little bit until we get to the prophets. And let's stop on Micah. All right? Can we do that? Here, let's go to Micah for a second. Okay. Micah chapter 6. 
Um, Micah was one of the Old Testament prophets. God had called him to go and warn his people that if they don't repent, God's going to send in another nation. It's going to sack and destroy Jerusalem, and he's going to carry you guys off into exile. And maybe you hear that and you think, gosh, that's really harsh. I mean, that's kind of a harsh response. Well, if that's your response, you don't understand the level of evil and injustice that was taking place in Israel in this cultural moment. Israel's political and religious leaders, even her prophets and priests, were totally corrupt. Okay, the nation, uh, they ran the nation through bribery. They were bending the rules to favor the wealthy. They were taking advantage of the poor and the weak in their society. They were enslaving foreigners and refugees. All violations of God's law and his goodness that he had called them to walk in and embody once you get in the promised land. And they had punted on that, and now they're doing life on their own terms. But what's particularly broken about this and what's so insidious that Micah is addressing in this, and you see this all over the prophets, is that even though they were doing all these evil things, they still thought that they were good because they never stopped going to the temple. They never stopped offering sacrifices and tithing. And for the most part, on the outside, they were being good religious boys and girls. And then when you get to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, there's this moment where Micah says to God's people, you don't understand. You guys think that you're, you're being good and you're doing good because you go to church and you're plugged into a small group and you, and you check all the right boxes, but you've, you've, you've missed the point. And he says this in verse 8. Look on the screen. God has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. God has shown you what real goodness is. What is it? What does the Lord require of you? Here it is. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's the exact opposite of what they were doing in the book of Micah. They thought they were being, they thought they were doing good because they were super churchy and religious. And Micah says, you guys don't understand what goodness is. Practicing biblical goodness looks like three things. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I want to say a brief word on each of these and talk about what it means for us and we'll be done. First, biblical goodness requires us to act justly. Did you notice that word in Micah chapter 6? What, is, what does goodness require of you, O mortal? God has shown you what it is and what does it require of you? First thing he says is biblical goodness requires that you act justly. And the question is, well, what does that mean? What's the meaning of biblical justice? Well, let me give you a few definitions, okay? In essence, biblical justice is taking action to confront and resist evil and restore goodness for the sake of human flourishing. That's biblical justice. Uh, one scholar, Al Mohler, says it like this. Uh, where there is the possibility of doing something that will really decrease the potential for human evil, we ought, notice he's speaking in terms of we are required rightly to do it. Or the Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans twelve twenty one. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? This, this is war language. Overcome is fight. Go to war with evil, but you don't fight evil with evil. Paul says overcome evil with good. And in the context of Romans 12, he's talking all about justice. 
look, here's the thing. Here's what, here's what you got to realize. Biblical goodness and biblical justice by nature is confrontational. Enneagram nines just got real uncomfortable in the room, right? This is by nature confrontational. It's this, it's this righteous resistance and defiance against evil. It's this holy anger that, that rises up in you when you see injustice and corruption. Listen, did you know, we, sometimes we think anger is a sin. Did you know that sometimes when you are not angry, it's a sin? Sometimes when you, look at the, when you look at certain things that are broken and evil in our city, around the world, in your own life, in my life, and it doesn't make you angry, you're sinning. You want to know how God feels when he looks at the injustice and the brokenness and the evil in our world? He feels angry. You want to know why he feels angry? Because he's good, and goodness requires righteous anger. There's no way to look at human trafficking and not be angry impossible. Look, there, some, some, some people may want to say, like, I, just, I choose not to believe that God is just. Well, nobody really wants that. What you really want is you want God to execute justice on everybody else, but not, not for your stuff, right? So you want, you want to be let off the hook, but you don't want anybody else to be let off the hook. That's, not, that's, not a, that's an impartial judicial system. That's not justice. It's because God is just, he plays fair, which means that he gets angry toward all sin and God is, God is, he's just because he's good. If, if he were not good, he wouldn't be just and he wouldn't be fair and he wouldn't even care. Is this landing? Are you guys following me here? Biblical goodness requires us to act justly. It requires us to get angry at injustice. Edmund Burke was opposed to the French Revolution. He wrote a lot about what makes for the fabric of a good moral society and a just culture. And he said this, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And he's being sarcastic when he talks about good men because goodness, by definition, will always do something. Goodness is not passive like Adam was in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. You go back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, you realize that Adam... Adam should have stood, Adam had the God-given a power and dominion over everything. What does that mean? Adam was, Adam was called by God to use his power to stand between the presence of evil and his bride and her vulnerability and to protect her, to stand up for her and to protect her. And he actually had the power to crush the head of this serpent. But what does Adam do in the garden? Well, he's passive. And that ain't good. And then he takes the, he, he, she hands him the fruit and he takes it. And then he blames God and blames her for it like an idiot. That ain't good. Goodness, goodness is this confrontational thing that, that results in justice, which says, I'm going to stand between the oppressed and the oppressor. And I'm going to confront this and I'm going to, res- I'm going to use whatever power I have and resources to confront this and resist this. And I'm going to do something about it. Goodness is never, ever passive. A beautiful modern example of this is the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who at, at great personal cost was willing to stand in between the evil of racism and those who were being oppressed by it 
and use what power God had given him to confront and resist and subvert the brokenness in our culture through nonviolent resistance. That's the thing. He didn't fight evil with evil. Paul says in Romans 12, 21, overcome evil with good. This is exactly what Dr. King did. This, this, this is what it means to do good. To bear the fruit of goodness is to practice this kind of biblical justice where we fight against evil with good. And according to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it looks like loving mercy. Justice and mercy, justice and mercy. You, you, these, these two things are inextricably tied. You see them show up together all over the scriptures. Well, we've talked about justice. The, the, the question is now, what is mercy? Okay, what is biblical mercy? Well, let me define it like this. Let's put it on the screen. If biblical justice is confronting and resisting the presence of evil, biblical mercy then is moving toward those who are being oppressed by said evil, especially toward the weak. And it's using your God-given power and resources to work toward their flourishing. This is what the kingdom of God does. One Hebrew scholar explains justice and mercy like this. It's a bit lengthy, but hang on. So hang on. He says, to do justice involves a fair and just use of power, especially to protect the weak from the strong. On the part of individuals, justice involves honest and fair business dealings and faithfulness to keep one's word, as well as not taking advantage of the poor and those with less power or protection. He goes on to say this, Contrary to our modern emphasis on individual rights, the Bible typically, if not overwhelmingly, frames doing justice and mercy for four categories of people. The poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant within the context of community. These social and demographic categories of persons are present in how many communities? Every community from the days of the biblical authors to today. And therefore, God's call to do justice and love mercy is no less relevant or urgent. The Bible uses these four broad categories to describe the most vulnerable and the weak and typically marginalized in society. You have the poor, the orphan, sometimes called the fatherless, the widow, and the immigrant. Also throughout the Old Testament called stranger, sojourner, exile, foreigner. Anytime you see justice and mercy in the Bible, it is almost always exclusively talking about using our power and resources to serve and care for these groups of people, because that's what biblical goodness requires. It's not, it's not a suggestion. This is, as you notice, this is, this is what God requires of his people. And it's all over the Bible, okay? Let me listen what I, listen, I, I could go on and on about this, but listen what God says in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. This is a summary. This haunts me. You don't have to turn there. God says this I find no pleasure in your sacrifices. Stop bringing me your meaningless offerings. I'm weary of them. Do you know there's a way to wear God out? with religious performance, with religious hypocrisy. My soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands for prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Notice how God is redefining goodness and what it means to be a good Christian. Being a, a, being a church attender or being involved in a bunch of Bible studies or going on mission trips or being plugged into a small group, listen to me, don't hear what I'm not saying, those are all good things. But those things don't make you a good Christian. Being a good Christian is about having your heart so gripped by the goodness of God's love displayed toward you in Christ and the presence of his very spirit within you that it translates in this, I'm going to leverage every, all the power that God has given me to serve the weak and to help the helpless, and to work toward restoring the image of God and the value in every human being for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is biblical goodness required of us. Now, let me get inside the inner critic that lives in my mind. And maybe he's present or she's present in the room as well. There's this little inner critic that wants to jump in right here and say, ah, this all sounds a bit too liberal for me. Okay. I think we're, we're, yeah, we're getting a little bit away from like biblical evangelism and maybe into this, like, are we, are we, are we migrating to like a social justice gospel kind of thing? Come on, man. Come on. Don't do that to me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This is the scriptures we're talking about here. God says, I don't care about your meaningless. I don't don't care that you go door to door on Tuesday nights to check a box. Do justice and mercy. Stop it. Like this this is the very heart of God. And let me tell you something. The gospel, gospel is not gonna feel like good news if it's not wrapped in justice and mercy. If it doesn't translate in justice and mercy, if it doesn't bear the fruit of God's goodness, it ain't good. And it ain't the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of something, but it's not the gospel of kingdom. Look, don't, don't get on me about this. This is Jesus. I'm like, I'm willing to take some shots for this, but like this is all over the scriptures. This, this is how Jesus talked about his gospel and his kingdom. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 23 when he's condemning the religious leaders the same way Micah does. Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, so you tithe. You're doing, you're doing some things right here, but you've neglected the more important, the more glorious. That's the word glory, weighty. The more weighty matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. Without neglecting the former, by the way. Don't throw, the ba- don't throw all these other good things out. Again, when Jesus talks about justice and mercy, he's always talking about these four categories of people. Let me give you, let me give you one more proof here. Okay, flip, you flip over a couple chapters in the right to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is painting a picture of judgment day, which is sure enough coming for all of us. And in this vision, we see Jesus sitting on the throne. On his right are the people who are saved. On his left are the people who are lost. This is what he says to the people on the left as to why they can't come into his kingdom. Okay? Starting in verse 41. 
He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For, here's his basis, here's his grounds for that kind of a uh, depart from me statement. He says, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. Let me pop quiz. Was Jesus a foreigner and a sojourner and a resident alien when he was on earth? Yeah, Robert, he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, yeah, this was a fool. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, he left his heavenly home to come here, right? So he's a stranger in a, he was an immigrant. He was a foreigner, okay? All right, let's think about that. So let's let that set in a little bit, okay? You didn't welcome me. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't, you didn't visit me. Then they will answer back to him. It's probably what I would say. Wait a minute. Wait. When did I see you hungry and thirsty and sick and naked and stranger and all that stuff? When? He will answer them. Well, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to even just one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, which is the same Greek word for just, the just, will enter into eternal life. What's the, what's the real fruit and evidence of saving faith in the human heart? Because James says that faith looks like works. It bears itself out in works. Nobody can get saved and then just do nothing, and then like live however they want. So what's the real fruit here? Is it a bunch of religious stuff? It's stewarding, according to Jesus on Judgment Day, what he's looking for is how did you treat the last, the least, and the lost of these? It's what he's looking for, not what I'm looking for. I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to lower the bar a little bit, okay? But this is what he's looking for. All this raises a really important question. Who are the last, least, and lost of these in our society, and how are we treating them? By the way, everything I'm giving you, you're deep inside my own conviction and heartbrokenness because I, I'm failing at this stuff, okay? I'm not doing this well, okay? This is my repentance. We have a, let me talk about this. We have a growing population of children in need of foster care and adoption in our city. Growing population. Can't keep up with the needs. I'm thankful we have several families in our church that God has provoked to step into that. And I just want to simply say, with no manipulation, this is between you and the Spirit, okay? But maybe, maybe this is the kind of justice and mercy God's inviting some of you to step into. We have an increasing problem of poverty in our city. According to city data, 18.3% of people in Paragould are living below the poverty line. That means a large percentage of people are cut off from the resources the majority of us take for granted. Things like opportunities for higher education, good medical care, gas money, positive support systems, shelter, food, clothing. Regardless of what you think about Stephen Colbert, I've, I realize I'm, I've already made myself sound like some kind of, I'm, I don't even watch his show, okay? I don't, but regardless of what you think about him, he's right when he says this. If this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, Either we have to pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are, or we've got to acknowledge 
that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition and then admit that we just don't want to do it. Where's God leading you to be more generous and to serve those in need? A value for my family that I'm trying to instill. Okay, again, I'm, I'm bad at this. I want to use my money to build my kingdom, okay? But um, I might tithe, but anything else is like, yeah, that's a, I, did that, I did my thing. I tithed, gave my 10% of my cumin and my dill, you know, but the rest of it's for me, right? I'm trying to instill this value in my family, my wife and I, where as, as, we, as, as life continues and maybe standard, maybe, you know, maybe our income increases over the years as cost of living raises. I don't know if it does or if it will or not. I hope so because I got three daughters and they're really expensive. But um, as, our, as, 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 we, as we increase, the goal for us is not to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of loving. Like just because God gives you a bonus or gives you a raise doesn't mean like that's, that's, a, that's a more money you have to get to spend on. I'm not saying he also doesn't want you to go enjoy good things. I'm not saying either one of those things. But like how, how is God calling you to steward what you have to raise your standard of loving and serve those who are needy? Um, and uh, Okay, here we go. Buckle up. Um, the Bible always sees minority groups as those who are among the marginalized and the most vulnerable to being taken advantage of and just disadvantages. Even if they're not being proactively taken advantage of, they just the deck of cards is stacked against them. You see this all over the scriptures. Our city's 93% white. And I'm not saying that's evil. But I, I, I also would be blind if I didn't acknowledge some of the historical brokenness behind those numbers. Less than 3% of our city's African-American, 3.2% is Hispanic or Latino. There's no way around the fact that minorities typically carry a burden of isolation, feel more isolated, and typically at a, more of a disadvantage. I'm not saying that it's our job as, you know, if you're a white person, to go out and save the world. That's so arrogant. Um, and uh, foolish, and that's insulting, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's our job as a church to love people, all people. I'm saying it's our job as a church that where this should be a place where the world should look at us and be baffled because every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation can get together and love each other in the name of Jesus Christ with the gospel and with his spirit at the center of it all. You know what, what God is doing is he's creating unity through diversity. He's making a new humanity where we maintain our different skin colors. We even maintain our different languages and cultural ethnic differences and the beauties of our different cultures and all of that. But there's unity and there's power in it through the blood of Christ. And we're baptized in the same body and we share the same spirit. The more diverse Paragold gets, the more diverse the crossing needs to get. And we should look like our city, guys. We should look like our city. God, come on, do it, Jesus. In the last few years, we've seen a dramatic increase of, uh, of, in the percentage of immigrants in our city. That's who Jesus is talking about when he says, I was a stranger and you didn't, you didn't help me. Sometimes, uh, you know, this word is sojourner. It's really, it's just, it's the, it's the word for a person from another country, another ethnicity who comes into your country, country with virtually nothing. 
Oftentimes, they come in the form of being a refugee. The largest population of Marshallese outside the Marshall Islands lives in northwest Arkansas. And if you're paying attention, many of them have made it their way to Paragould, Arkansas. You want to know why they're here? Because in the 1960s, the United States uh, detonated a nuclear bomb around the Marshall Islands and on accident made several of their islands inhabitable. So as retribution, we paid them money and we gave them the right to travel back and forth to and from the United States and to live here, to come and live here, right? They didn't ask to be here. They've been displaced. It's our responsibility as the church to welcome them and give them every opportunity to flourish. We also have several families who are African refugees in our city who come from Somalia and Ethiopia. They've been displaced because of war and violence and civil political unrest in their countries. I spoke with a local school teacher recently who told me that one of the African boys in her class, that his dad was a doctor back home. They, they made so much money that his mom was a stay-at-home mom. And then um, his dad took them to a refugee camp when the government, the government started breaking into people's homes and murdering them in the middle of the night. So dad does what any dad would do, and he's got the resources to do it. He takes his family, and they go to a refugee camp. And then one morning they wake up, and they're told, you're being exiled to Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis where? Like what? It's in the United States. We're sending you to the United States to a place called Memphis, Tennessee. Well, what is, where is that? I'm, I'm, scared. I'm terrified. What, what is that? I don't know. That's where you're going. And then through a series of other circumstances, a lot of them have ended up, since Memphis is right, hop, skipping and jump down the street, a lot of them have ended up here in Paragould, Arkansas. And this teacher literally, guys, I'm not manipulating you, she wept big alligator tears as she told me that she was so tired of hearing this lie that these families are here trying to take our jobs and mooch off the government so they can have their little slice of the American dream. She said the only dream they're living is not being murdered in their sleep in their own homes. Jesus calls us to step out of our comfort zone and welcome these people who are different from us and to steward and share our resources with those who are strangers and foreigners. And he says, as you do it to them, you do it as if you're doing it to me because that's who I identify with. I was one of them. Historically, this has been at the heart of why we do missional communities as a church. MC is just a group of people who are practicing the way of Jesus together in Northeast Arkansas so that we can see more of God's kingdom break in and his will be done here in our city as it is in heaven. We, we want to bring the gospel and God's love to the last, the least, and the loss of society. This is the reason why we exist as a church. We want to see the kingdom of God flourish in our city. We want everybody to know the real Jesus and be welcomed in by him, into his hospitality, into his divine love. Now, how do we, what's going to sustain that? Because that feels like a high bar to me. Let, me. let me let me say this, and we'll close here. If you go back to Micah 6, 8, Micah says practicing biblical goodness looks like three things, right? Act justly, love mercy. Lastly, walk humbly with your God. This is the key to everything. This is where we find the motivation and the courage to step into this and actually do it. Because look, biblical goodness is not arrogant. 
He says, biblical goodness is you walk humbly with your God. So biblical goodness is not, here I am to save the day, right? Like, biblical goodness is, I'm, I'm spiritually impoverished and morally bankrupt apart from the riches of God's grace in Christ. Biblical goodness walks humbly with God, which is, I'm going to acknowledge my own evil and my own injustice and the fact that this stuff lives in me and I turn a blind eye to racism and I don't really care about the fatherless. And I'm walking humbly acknowledges my own evil, my own need of grace and forgiveness and my own helplessness to rescue myself. God have mercy on me. That's biblical goodness. That's walking humbly with your God. It's, it's, it's rejoicing in how good God has been toward you and toward me, even when we don't deserve it. And notice that Micah says God has shown us that. Isn't that amazing? He didn't say God has told you what goodness, and he's told you about his justice and mercy. It says he has shown it. He's displayed it. He's fleshed it out. Where? In the person and work of his son, Jesus. Paul says in the Corinthians that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the true and better Adam who comes and stands between his bride and between this serpent. And Jesus uses his power and his authority to protect the weak and the vulnerable and to rescue her and to crush this serpent's head and triumph over evil through goodness. And he does it by becoming weak. And helpless. And he does it by leaving his eternal home and becoming a resident alien and a foreigner and a sojourner with us. And he did it so that we can taste and see his goodness. The the cross of Jesus, you know, we take communion, we're tasting and seeing the fruit, literally the fruit of the vine, the fruit of God's justice and mercy, his goodness. And at the cross, his justice and mercy kiss Because Jesus bears the full weight of our sin and our injustice and our evil. And he bears the full weight of God's justice so that we can receive as the weak and the needy and the helpless, God's mercy. And if you believe that, if your life is oriented around that, take this meal, man, and taste and see that he's good and rejoice in his goodness toward you. If that's not where you're at, we're glad you're here, but don't, don't take this meal. This meal is, a, is for those who place their hope in Jesus. If that's not where you are, it's okay to be on in, where you are in your journey. But take Jesus, not this meal. Maybe you're the one I was praying for in my dream in the middle of the night. God, we're going to sing a song in a second. Goodness is running after you. Goodness is running after you. Some of you feel the hot breath of Jesus on your neck and you're scared and you're running and you're trying to hide and Jesus is calling you this morning to stop and surrender. And goodness is pursuing you. 